Hello and welcome. In our first series of our 2021 campaign, we're chatting about all things creative, providing insights into the creative industry and highlighting expert advice for those considering a career in this field. I'm Tash, the Operations Marketing Director this year, with my co-host Liv, the Creative Marketing Director. As we are currently in lockdown and unable to be physically in conversation, we're recording over Zoom and going with the flow. So today we are virtually joined by our special guest and legend of the fashion industry, Lucinda Chambers. Lucinda worked at British Vogue for 36 years, holding the position of fashion director for 25 of them. She has worked with models including Kate Moss and Sydney Crawford, as well as with notable photographers including Mario Testino and Patrick de Marchelier. Alongside this, Lucinda has also worked as a consultant at Prada and Marnie. Today, she heads up sustainable luxury fashion brand Colville, as well as the e-commerce site Collagerie. The DECFS podcast, in conversation, in lockdown. Chatting virtually about all things creative with some of the leading figures in the field. So listen on, be inspired and enjoy. Lucinda, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we can't he- wait to hear your thoughts. It was such a pleasure. Lovely to be here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, like Tasha said, thank you so much for coming. Um, how are you finding the lockdown at the moment? Are you finding it any different to the first lockdown? Because I've been speaking to a few people who've actually said the second lockdown's been so much easier because we've kind of just all got used to being inside, to be honest. I think that's true. I mean... I think it's easier because we can sort of navigate around all the things that one, you know, got so used to doing, meeting people in person. And I think we had that sort of um, really sort of challenging time at the beginning of the first lockdown. Although I have to say, I think that the lockdowns have had sort of different spirits in a way. Like in the first lockdown, you know, everybody sort of, it was such a kind of shock not to be able to do the things and how to navigate your way through. And in fact, we designed a whole collection of Colville just on Zoom, which was sort of amazing. But there was a sort of panic about, you know, the mills shutting or the factories going to shut. And this second lockdown, no, I agree with you. I think we are used to it, although I think think I'm finding it a bit more difficult in the sense that I really miss people. You know, I miss actually, um, I mean, I went to do a Matches podcast last night and it was amazing stepping out and actually being in a room I mean obviously all socially distance and everything fine but you know just seeing people again and and you know watching expressions and faces and being in a different situation so I have missed that so I have missed that I think more keenly in the second lockdown for sure yeah I suppose interactions just change so much and we as like an exec we've only spoken over zoom for the last few months so we've never actually met half the people is that incredible? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It'll be lovely when you do then. It'll be really fun, you know, fantastic yeah. occasion when you finally get to see people in the flesh. Exactly. I also just think for humans, we kind of need social interaction. I feel as though that's kind of quite motivating. And I know that I was speaking to a few friends recently and we were all saying we've kind of resorted to wearing the same outfit every single day in lockdown because you don't have that kind of going out, getting to see people doing things. Have you found that you're wearing sort of similar clothes or have you been quite motivational in sort of finding a new outfit to kind of give you enthusiasm for the day? Well, again, it goes through sort of cycles. I mean, that's the thing is everything always changes, doesn't it? That's the nature of of us and and everything around us is that it's in a constant uh, state of flux. So I think, again, I've gone through sort of different waves. Like at the beginning, I certainly dressed as I normally would dress, which is a bit dress up because I love everything to do with dressing. Um, Then I kind of totally went into slump stage and, yeah, wore the same 
like woolly jogging trousers and then I've I've, I've got myself out of that because I have to say Serena and I um, my partner in Kalajri and I and and with Molly we have so many zoom calls so I have you know I do make an effort for that and I, it makes me feel better I think as well mm. if I don't make an effort and have a sort of a bit of a dress down day and not really bother um I definitely I, f I feel getting up and dressing you know in in you know you've got a wardrobe full of kind of quite nice clothes so yeah. I think why not use them it's a bit of an uplift and uh yeah, I think it's good. It's good. Yeah, it definitely. But I definitely could. I definitely could slide if I if I didn't have a Zoom calls. For yeah, sure. and I love. We'd love to start off by sort of hearing about the beginnings of your career and then kind of working our way through. And I'd love to know whether you've always kind of since you were a young child always have sort of loved fashion and had a desire to work in fashion, or whether you know it was a later thing that you realised, and whether you know you surround were surrounded by creative people growing up who kind of inspired you. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't really aware of fashion growing up. And even as a teenager, I wasn't really, I wasn't interested in fashion. I mean, we didn't really buy magazines. We weren't really a magazine sort of household. Um, my father was in advertising, so he was pretty creative. And my mother actually loved clothes. But I think it was more that we loved clothes, not fashion. Um, fashion wasn't anything I was ever you know, thinking that I could be a part of, or even actually had the appetite to. I mean, my mother was a really snappy dresser. She, you know, we used to go, we, we actually used to go to Howard's, always with a tape measure in our pocket, which I have to say I still do have a tape <laughs> measure upon my person at all times. Um, and we'd go to Howard's and we'd kind of get into the changing room together and we'd try everything on. My mother would measure everything. And then we'd go back home, we'd buy the fabric or the material along the way, often off the Edgware Road, and my mother would make what we had seen. We'd copy it. Yeah, that's incredible. And so we we both actually can sew. I mean, my, my mother's I know, but um, I can sew quite well. And I used to make a lot of, you know, make a lot of my own clothes. I was obsessed, I have to say, I was obsessed with dolls until quite a probably inappropriate age. <laughs> um, so I think that has quite a lot of bearing into my future career. Yeah. But I didn't see that at the time. I just thought, oh, I love dressing them. And I used to cut their hair endlessly until they were sort of bald. Every, they would all have fringes, which got shorter and shorter. So I think I always loved creating little outfits. But I never, ever dreamt that that could lead to a career. Yeah. And I didn't know that such a career existed. So no, I think, I think it was clothes that I loved. And that was definitely from my mother. And, and my friends, you know, they dress much better than I did, much more creatively. Um, I matched everything up, which is maybe now why I'm so anti-matching anything. Uh, <laughs> but I never felt very secure about, you know, the way I... I mean, I think as I then went into my teenage years and into my sort of late teens, I definitely did experiment more and a lot of mistakes were made and totally got into the colour purple for everything, hair, eyeshadow. I think we've all been there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I just, like, I can't even look at the colour purple now. Um, <laughs> it's very triggering. But, um, but yes, I think, I, I think it was clothes. Clothes and decoration yeah. and, yeah, more than, more than fashion for that's sure. That's so nice because I feel like that's more of an almost authentic way to get into it because you had a sort of passion for being involved in, like, the art of making clothes and stuff. 
which I think is really nice. I think also what's so interesting is people really do interact with the fashion industry, even if it's if that's as a consumer, and yet people aren't maybe consciously aware that they are interacting with the fashion industry. I know lots of people um, who've worked at sort of magazines have cited those first interactions um, in the fashion industry as really crucial to the rest of their career. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about your first interactions with the fashion industry in a professional sense as opposed to being a consumer? Sure. I mean, um, I suppose what my first touch point was, which was really like a light bulb going off, which is... Um, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was at art college and I was terrible at art college. I really was like the least talented person there. I couldn't sketch or shade and everybody else could do that. And um, so I was struggling there a bit and knew it wasn't really for me, but didn't have a clue what to do. And But then I discovered a, a room full of perspex and all the kind of jiggers and the black and decker drills and the saws. And I started making, and I don't know what got me started, but I started making earrings, Perspex earrings, and then Perspex earrings, and then I started selling it. And that was amazing because, A, I was selling it, they were all kind of like very 80s, zigzaggy. But one pair found its way into a magazine, and it was a free magazine, you know, that was handed out on the tubes, a bit like Stylist, and it was called Miss London. And I remember some a friend opened the magazine, they said, your earrings are in a magazine. And I literally, I could, couldn't believe it. Just, it was like, because of course there was no internet in those days, there was no Instagram. So all the information you got was from newspapers and the radio and magazines. So it was incredible. And what was incredible for me was I realized that there was a process that I had held those earrings in my hand. I'd made them in my bedroom, you know, in the art college and with the Black and Decker drill. And they had somehow got through a process that ended up on a model in a magazine and to me that was like it was it was like magic that had happened I just it was sensational for me so I thought I, I, I really want to know what this process is to understand it better and kind of want to be a part of that process even though I didn't know how to or anything about you know how magazines work so I thought well, what I'll do as a first start is I will decide that I am going to do everything to do with fashion. So every job I have from here on has got to have something to do with fashion in order to get myself to that higher plane. That's what I thought anyway. So I worked in Topshop, you know, on the floor and sold clothes and I worked for Edinburgh Festival Company. I made all the costumes for them. And yeah, so that's that's really and then I and then I ran up Vogue one day and I and I was very lucky I got through to the head of HR. And the first question she asked me was, who do you know here? Yeah. And I said, I don't know anybody. And she said, nobody. And I said, no, no, nobody. And she said, well, can you, have you got a lunch hour? Do you want to come for an interview? And I was in Topshop around the corner. So I trotted along for an interview and she was amazing. And she said, you've never sat behind a desk. You don't know how to type, you know, but I like you. And I think you're passionate about something and don't take another full-time job until I found you one here. Mm. And three weeks later, she rang me up, she said, I found your job. It is the worst job in the building, but I have found your job. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was the worst one. But it was a job there, it was amazing. I couldn't believe it. But yeah. that is something that I, possibly the most proudest thing that I did at Vogue was, for me, as a personal thing, I was proud of, that I never asked anybody, any whether they knew anybody, and I made sure that every single person who sent in their CV, 
was responded to and that nobody was there because their father or mother, boyfriend or whatever, was there. It was there yeah. through nepotism, yeah. you know. Do you think that, was, like, so that yeah, stigma's that... changed, sort of, as you've been at Vogue? Have you seen that kind of... So I think people have a stigma that perhaps that there is nepotism involved in the fashion industry, not necessarily yes. just at Vogue, but do you think there's now yeah. more chance for people to get their foot in the door? For sure, 100%. That's completely changed. And mm. I think... You know, the fact that people can DM you, you know, that anybody can, they can send their CV, there's a place it will land. You know, we, everybody, you know, when I first started, was sending, you know, letters in an envelope and, you know, they might or might not have been answered. Um, I think the HR department was run well and I think they were all answered. But, but, you know, I think we can get a sense of the person, you know, even if they don't have an Instagram account, you can get a sense of, you could put your point of view across, you can get yourself out there. There's so many, it's very democratic, there's so many different ways. And I think for sure, I mean, having said that, you know, somebody will say to me, oh, I've got a friend. I mean, even now, you know, an email this morning, oh, I've got a friend who's got a son, you know, who'd really like to, you know, work at Colville. And, but you can get so far with that. But then I think you have to prove yourself. And funnily enough, I think you have to work almost doubly hard to prove that you're not there because of yeah. nepotism. Mm. So it can work both ways. You know, it but, must have maybe yeah. been more definitively rewarding for you that you didn't have that nepotism which kind of began your career. I imagine that you started working at Vogue knowing you were solely there because your passion and drive really impressed who was interviewing you. Yes, I don't... To be honest, I, I totally see your point and I wished I'd thought of it at the time. I didn't think of that at the time because I didn't know how the system worked. I was so green about everything at Vogue. I couldn't understand why everybody was dressed like they were dressed, which to me seemed quite conventional. And <laughs> they weren't wearing mad, crazy, wonderful, fabulous outfits. Um, they were all sweater dresses. Um, so I think I was too busy thinking of that and making my own clothes every day, which did fall apart um, <laughs> at the end of every evening. Um, and trying to sort of impress the hell out of people. So I wasn't really thinking about that I was sort of any you know you're not confident at that age you know yeah. you just are trying to do your best um and you don't think you've got any particular skill set but I think what I did think was that they somehow liked the beginnings of me you know mm. and I went away and I did teach myself how to type in two weeks so you know I had the drive so I think I was more focused on getting it right and really nervous as well really yeah nervous. um and then obviously so you progressed and stayed there for 36 years and then went as fashion director for 25 of those if I'm yep. right yeah, got um, yeah. and so I'd love to know that as you got to that sort of more senior position um how you kind of saw everything change whether you had sort of felt that you had more pressure um and whether you had any particular moments where you know you had to make crucial decisions um and how you kind of overcame any high pressure moments I mean it's interesting I feel very fortunate is that I don't I don't really feel stress keenly. Um, I think I'm a great optimist. That is amazing. amazing. <laughs> I mean, the editor at the time, um, well, who was there for a very long time, who was wonderful, Alexander Shulman, used to say, you know, you're such an optimist. You're such an optimist. And I would say, well, you're such a pessimist. She said, no, I'm a realist. And that was a big argument for 25 of those years. Um, because I would just think everything was going to be all right. Or... If it wasn't all right, that would be for a reason as well. Mm. You know, I think, and actually Maria Tessino always used to say everything for a reason. And I think that's really, really true. I think if things don't work out, 
they weren't meant to work out. I also am quite like a dog with a bone that um, I don't really take no for an answer. I find another way around it. So not in a kind of bullying way so much, but just more in a creative way. Well, if they're saying no to that, then maybe we should look at it another way. And I mean, of course there were stressful moments. I mean, I think lots of things went wrong, that's for sure. Um, mm. You know, I, I remember once arriving at a location in Miami and the hotel had been and the beach actually had just been completely ripped apart by a tornado. And so we shot, and actually I've got wonderful kind of like, sort of panned out and panned in. And actually we, it was one of my favorite shoots and we just used a tiny corner of the, tiny corner of the beach and we used, we kind of painted up the doors that had been smashed and, and it was beautiful. It was, it was, it looked gorgeous. We got a cover out of it in 20 pages. It was fine. Um, I think when we sh were shooting the Duchess of Cambridge, I think that was that was probably the most pressurised thing, but not because of her, because she was utterly delightful, mm. but because we had to keep it secret. And only three people at Vogue knew. So Really? Yes, and what was amazing, Alex knew, no, four people. Alex knew, our production, our head of production knew, Rosie, and um, myself, and obviously the photographer and the person who's doing hair and makeup. But apart from that, we had to do a completely dummy Vogue with a dummy cover. So everybody at Vogue thought that that cover was going ahead, but we knew that we had secured the Duchess of Cambridge's first ever shoot. She'd never done wow. a shoot before. So That's to not incredible. let that slip out. And also it was a secret for six months in the planning. So. That was a long I'm time a to keep a secret. So, well, I'm a ch and I'm a chatterbox Charlie, as you can probably tell. So that was quite kind of hard. But actually, I didn't tell anybody because you just, it was so, you could so compartmentalise it. And, yeah. you know, we were going to, to visits to the um, palace to, you know, ask her what she wanted to wear and to talk her through the clothes and what we had in mind. And Josh Owens was the photographer. And, you know, it was, that was, that was quite a pressure just to really and particularly for Alex for it not to leak out to the press because I think if it had leaked out to the press we would have had to can cancel the shoot yeah so that and um, you know but that was an amazing thing to do and she was utterly lovely and I, you know other things like photographing Michelle Obama yeah I think but they were never stressful it wasn't stressful it was it was exciting. Um, it was exciting yeah yeah, yeah. And definitely, and going to kind of incredible locations, you know, they it, it wasn't stressful. It was more kind of like a sense of responsibility that yeah. you had had to do a job and you had to get it done to the best of your ability and you wanted to do it really well. Yeah. I think it was more that than stress. Yeah. Well, leading on from this, I, I'm really excited about this question. Um, we wanted to know who the most exciting or interesting cover girl you worked with was, or the most memorable. Um, Yes, such a good question. Um, well, I think the most one, well, so many impressive women. Mm. I, ha I, I am very lucky, you know, to photograph very impressive women, which is an incredible privilege, I have to say. Um, I think the most unexpectedly wonderful person was Taylor Swift. Really? Yeah. She was just so smart and so professional she turned up with one person one her publicist who she then who then went off 
which has never, honestly, never happened before. They they usually come, <clears throat> celebrities in particular, come with a lot of people. Um, so that was amazing. She was just prepared to do anything. Um, we give, gave her a totally different look, which I hadn't really talked to her about it before. Um, I just decided that's what, you know, I wanted to do. And she was, she loved it. I said, you're always so sort of clean looking. I want to make you a little bit nastier. And um, she was amazing uh, and so bright and just delightful. But I think Michelle Obama was really impressive, really exciting to meet her. And, you know, we went to schools together and she just shook every single person's hand and asked them the most interesting questions and it was that was very very impressive and and she was hilarious actually she said she said i've honey she said we've been a hundred years in power and i've never been as nervous as i am today being photographed by mario testino <laughs> i thought that was i thought that was, so sort of, I thought that was extraordinary i was like yeah. oh my god you've got nothing to be nervous of. <laughs> great I, I just think from a feminist perspective it's just amazing that you've worked with some of the most powerful and leading women in today's world well i think that was it's always been i think that was that was an incredible highlight is that you could pick up the phone and say, you know, do you want to be photographed by Vogue? And I think, I don't think anybody said no. I, I mm. really don't. I don't. I can't think of anybody who said no. So access was extraordinary. And, and of course, people who are, you know, what I've really learned is that people who are really good at what they do are usually pretty incredible people and very confident in what they do. But they're not necessarily confident in front of the camera. So, you know, a lot of actresses are, you know, they're brilliant at acting, but they don't necessarily love to be photographed as, as themselves. And that's always been a real challenge, actually. I mm -hmm. think, um, and part of your job, and I, I always felt this at the time, and I still do, that part of one's job is to f make people feel like they're getting into a warm bath, you know, that there's nothing to be nervous of. And that's, that's me, that's the photographer, that's... But, you know, I work with incredible models who... You know, I remember the first time I worked with a very famous model called Guinevere Van Seamus and I'd never worked with her and she'd been modelling literally since she was 16. And I came very late to her because I thought, God, what can I bring to the table for her? She's such a extraordinary model. And so I sort of did this shoot and, and I was quite nervous about meeting her because she's worked with every single stylist and photographer. And and I said, oh, you're, you know, I want you to be, you're a dominatrix, but you're slightly wary, but you're feeling nervous. Because I always build a narrative around the shoots, always. There's always got to be a backstory. Um, because really wonderful models are like actresses. You know, mm. they want to get into that character. And I said, so you're waiting for this person. And we had this incredible set designed by Jill Nichols. And, um, and there was a table and it was like a sort of drawing room, but very dark and red and green and a bit, a bit sort of um a bit edgy but a bit sensuous yeah. anyway guinevere she got on the table i dressed her she had her hair and makeup done she was an incredible sort of prada dress i always remember this and she got up on all fours on the table really and she's so intelligent and she bought this character of this sort of it was like an alan jones mm. character and i just thought oh wow okay okay yeah, yeah you are the most incredible like <laughs> To be so, and that's the difference I think between models and actors or celebrities yeah. is that models 
perfect yeah. this craft of getting into this character. They yeah. are like actresses. It's interesting to think that you sort of assume if someone does something that's in a professional sense, constantly in front of the camera, like acting, that they must suddenly be so at ease when they're doing an editorial photo shoot. We had um, our, fashion, our DECFS headshots taken a couple of weeks ago, and I don't think I've ever felt... You suddenly become acutely aware of your own body yeah, and so how you're posing, and yeah. I just felt so strange. And it's, yeah. I, I can't imagine people that like do that every single day or people that are doing it but don't do it daily and it's not really their profession it is it's a quite a weird experience to go it through is. and you're very self-critical you know and even even like with the best actresses i, I photographed kate blanchett like enough to photograph her many times and my god she's so beautiful <laughs> but you know and she can act well we all know how she can act it's just uh, uh, incredible but not necessarily you know want not necessarily in her comfort zone with you know in front of the camera taking pictures of her character absolutely fine but but you know but so professional about it and you know i think i think one can't assume just because they're incredible actors that they actually are comfortable in front of a camera that's about themselves that yeah. you know very more often than not they're not so you have to make them feel you know beautiful and and comfortable and happy in the clothes that you've chosen for them and the character yeah. that you know they want to portray you know if that's what they if that's what you want to do so yeah it doesn't always go hand in hand it's interesting yeah would you say then it's harder almost to style as a stylist to style a model then who can kind of be sort of have lots of different sides to them rather than a celebrity who's probably known for like a certain look or comfortable in a certain way i found it much much easier to photograph models because mm -hmm. because um that's what their craft is you know it's 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 modeling and it's bringing clothes to life and that's a skill you know that's that's altogether totally different yeah um i mean you could get a very inexperienced model and you know part of your job and part of the photographer's job is to you know to make her feel because i think if you're a really good it's an interesting thing i think if you're a really good model you don't really care about looking ugly or extreme or, you know, like the mm. story about Guinevere climbing on the table. She didn't care whether she was making a fool of herself or not. Of course, she wasn't because she was doing something that was so unexpected and such made such a powerful image about vulnerability and power in women. Mm. And that's exactly what the shoot was about. It was about a powerful woman with an air of, with a sort of jag of vulnerability. And she just got it. You know, it's a bit like you know, Carly Kloss, incredible, not mm. afraid of leaping, jumping, screwing up their faces, you know, looking awkward and and odd Yeah. for the sake of a picture. You know, the greatest, you know, one of the greatest models of all time, Linda Evangelista, you know, she didn't have a conventionally beautiful face, but she made modelling her such a craft to such a high level. Um, Jenny Howarth, the same, who I still work with today, who's my age, you know, in her 60s. Yeah. Fabulous. You know, at a very young age, she knew she wanted to be a model and made modelling so intelligent um, because they bring everything mm. to that picture. Yeah. Um, it is all about them. So, you know, to have somebody who is such a consummate professional is, is very easy. Um, so, yes, I think I definitely find photographing models probably a lot easier than than celebrities for sure yeah. yeah that distinction is so interesting actually yeah um and sort of a ha as a woman in 
in your profession. Have you found that your gender has played a role in the opportunities that you've experienced, whether that was at Vogue or at Colville, um, or just yeah, throughout your whole career? Have you noticed any kind of yes differences? Yes, I think I think, and interestingly, particularly now at Colville, and I'll, I'll get on to that. But for sure, when I was at Vogue, um, there was probably two men that we interacted in, and that was our art director, Robin Derrick and Stephen Quinn, our publisher. Um, it was, there were men at the top and there were women in, you know, actually sort of creating the magazine, for, for, for sure. Um, I think that's changed now and it was beginning to change. It was definitely beginning to change. And now what I love is, and I, and I often had um, boy assistants um, who were really, really good. And, and at home, well, I have three boys and I ha always had a boy nanny for many years, for ten over 10 years. So I sort of came home to all all boys and a lot of testosterone and, <laughs> you know, went into work and it was all, you know, the majority of it was women. I think women now, I mean, particularly at Colville, uh, we do a lot of social projects, which we absolutely love. And, and that's about empowering women and to also give women who, you know, who do a lot of, you know, who are artisans and who do a lot of craft to keep their craft alive. I mean, we do we do a wonderful project in Colombia with the Weiwu tribe of women who make our cylinder bag for us. And wow. and what's incredible is, I mean, I've always loved Colombian bags anyway, but now they they weave them to our to our design and to our colours. But they can only do it if they're happy. Um, so it's kind of amazing. We have to say to matches, well, we've you know, or any of other our other you know distributors. Well, we've got 10 of them or we've got 30 of them because they and it's kept them going through lockdown so we're very proud of that and we keep doing them with them with different colors so that's been fantastic and then we've got another women's project um it's a fantastic company called maison bengal and i happen to sit next to sheena the woman who started maison bengal who use only women who weave jute and sisal and i said oh would, you know could we do a collaboration with colville and so we've done completely different patterns and colours with them as well. And that's a women's group. And then we've got a women's group in um, in Morocco who weave our rugs. And that's amazing. So yes, so women have become, well, they've always been incredibly important mm. to, to, you know. But what's so interesting as well is now there's so many women photographers. And that was very different when I started out in my career at fashion, there were no women photographers, very few, Annie Leibovitz. Um, there were some incredible ones back in the day, like Lee Miller and Eve Arnold, but very few women. I think men were very hesitant about using women as their assistants, so they never got a leg up. Mm. You know, they always were worried about, there's a lot of kit to carry, you know. Yeah. I know women photographers and women assistants, they're perfectly happy to carry the kit. And I think that's been a seismic change because I've been so long in the career that has mm. been wonderful. I mean, the last few shoots, last week I was shooting for Ralph Lauren as a woman photographer. Um, my art director was is a bloke, um, but most of, yeah, most of the people in the team, are, a, a real mix actually, a real mix of men and women. So I think it's a really much more level playing field now, which I'm really thrilled about. Yeah. Um, for sure, yeah. I will always champion women and their craftsmanship because we have to uh 
and it's a, a de delight and it's really important and it's very important for Molly, my partner in Colville and myself. And it's just great to be working with so many women photographers. And I mean, I go out, I really just go out to find the best person for the job, but more and more, um, that person is a woman. Mm. Just picking up on what you were saying earlier about sustainability, I think we'd probably all agree that sustainability is really, in fashion, has really sort of come to the forefront of discussions. I mean, I know that when I was younger and sort of 13, 14, going to Hollister or Jack Wills and not really thinking about sort of a consumer conscience, and definitely in the last few years, and I know most of the people I know, we shop in secondhand shops and there's an element of thinking that's more rewarding and I guess I feel better after a purchase, after having um, sort of visited either like a vintage shop or a secondhand shop. Do you think for the student community that it's that sustainability isn't accessible in terms of price point because I love high fashion and I love looking at what the huge fashion houses are doing um, and they obviously, lots of them have a sustainable ethos but I mean, it's just not attainable in a financial sense. I mean, I think the whole issue around sustainability is a really interesting one. I mean, there are lots of different ways to sort of talk about it. I think the first thing is that everybody's asking the question. So, you know, Molly and I, you know, when we're doing Colville, every fabric that we choose, every every mill is asked the question of how sustainable is this? You know, and cotton can be as unsustainable as, you know, acrylic polyamide wool. So I think what's great is nobody's got anywhere to hide anymore. So whether it's luxury, high street, niche brands, um, middle market, everybody is being asked that question. Not all of them are asking the question, but everybody is being asked that question. Um, so I think that's really good. In terms of, um, and because they're being asked, they've got to come up with solutions and they've got to, you know, we are, we are all responsible to find finding better solutions. Being 100% sustainable is really, really expensive. And I know that's not an attractive on-brand thing to say, but it just is. That's just, that's, that's the way of the world yeah. at the moment. Mm. So anything you can do, like you are saying that you buy in vintage, you know, buy in sort of thrift shops and vintage shops, is great. I think anything that can have another life is fantastic. I think on, at Collagerie, you know, our tagline is the one thing over everything. And, you know, what I always feel is it's not how much you buy, it's about how much you love what you buy. So on Collagerie, we we put everything from luxury to high street brands to niche brands that we've discovered on Instagram to, you know, to artisans. To we, we want the whole experience on Collagerie to be one of discovery. And we will put something on H&M and we'll put something that's come from matches. I mean, I will always go into the product page and look at how something is made and what it's made from. So that is the point of collagery, that we have done all that that footfall for you, all that homework, um, all that sort of needing to ask those questions. We've done it for you. And that is the point of collagery, that what we put under your nose will be the very best of what we can find and it's being done in a, a best way possible. I think any way that we can make small differences, we have to make them. So for instance, at Colville, 
we we understand where every single fabric is from and how it's made and what the footprint is we won't send things we won't send things from china to us you know we we will really understand what that journey is um we won't use a cardboard box i mean there has been no cardboard box that has been sent to colville or collagery that hasn't been reused a hundred times until it's literally falling apart so i think all the coat hangers you know that the factories would send to colville that our clothes would hang on that then we would then dispose of because obviously when we send the clothes to the shops they would want to put their own coat hangers on we've now cut out that part of part of that process you know we don't hang up the clothes anymore because we can actually do without yeah. those plastic coat hangers we don't use plastic bags everything every, every step along the, the the journey has to be questioned and if you can do it another way then do that do it a better way but it's slow I, steps. I do you know, think it's... that ethos is so important yeah. to sort of invest in a very small amount, but um, pieces which have that durability. I think lots of people fall into the trap, and myself included in the past, of sort of inundating your wardrobe in this sort of fast fashion culture. And really, I think sort of a process of restricting yourself is so important when it comes to promoting sustainability within the fashion industry. I think so, and I think... You know, I'm somebody who absolutely look. I mean, I love, you know, I really miss going to the high street and feeling and touching the clothes and, you know, um, and I and I and I am a I mean, I am a consumer, but I think I'm a careful consumer. You know, I, I, I enjoy. I mean, I think it's why we started collagery, which is that nobody shops top to toe um, luxury fashion. You know, you buy your, you know, you buy your h&m jumper you buy your possibly you save up or get given a an amazing handbag that you keep for you know 20 years that you look after you know but i'm wearing you know i think this sweater is from h&m and i've had it for seven years and i love it because it's you know got gold buttons and mm-hmm. i'll always wear it and i think my sweaters from uniqlo and my skirts from colville and my earrings are colville so why we started collagerie was i think a lot of women and particularly in my age and, you know, from 35 to 65, dressing the way that I dress, which is a bit of high street, a bit of a discovery brand, a niche brand, and, and, a, and a bit of designer. And we thought, wow, there's no platform to that has that, that represents that. You know, where, where am I going to find all that information from? Yeah. So that's why we started Collagery, you know, to reflect the way women shop. So... I think, of course, you know, what is brilliant is that we do a lot of, um, we do sustainable edits on, on on collagery. And luckily, more and more, you know, there are more and more um, ponds to fish in because there are more and more companies that have sustainable arms to them. So it's going in the right direction, but it, you know, it will take a while. Yeah. Um, and sort of building on what you've just mentioned about Colville and Collagery and kind of the new challenges with those new brands. Um, so the DCFS, as I'm sure you're aware, the DCFS theme this year is to do with technology. Um, and we'd love to hear how, you, you know, what challenges you face setting up these new businesses, which are primarily, you know, e-commerce sites online. Um, and how that's been a new challenge for you working from a publication to going to, you know, running your own brand that's, you know, lots to do with technology too. Yes. I mean, we have a poster in our office that says tech first. Um, (laughs) And literally uh, all 
you know, I was very, very late to, um, I think technology really frightened me. I mean, I could do emails and I, I mean, I wasn't, a com I think I was the last person to get a computer at Vogue, which is slightly embarrassing. Um, and I sort of held off and I actually held on to really st stupid beliefs that I always needed to get out and see things, which I think you do, but it was to the cost of learning and finding my way around tech. And I think I was frightened, if I'm honest. I think I was frightened of it. I thought it, I was frightened of it. And I also thought it wouldn't have a part to play in my career. My career was all about touching, feeling, choosing, editing things. And so when Serena heard and myself came up with the idea of collagery, um, obviously it was going to be an online platform. I mean, we, we could see the way that things were going. I mean, I think one can see that um, that that magazines and tech, you know, e-commerce platforms were going to have to find their way together. I think there'll always be magazines. I think there'll be a lot fewer of them. And I think um, people will, you know, people are finding their information in different ways. And they're certainly finding it, um, you know, within tech. And I think that's where we've been incredibly lucky with the timings of collagery that um i think serena and i wanted to build a platform that we ourselves would want to use it mm. and you know we didn't think that we were so weird and wonderful that there weren't going to be a thousand million other women out there who would you know and men as well which actually we've got a huge men um uh following as well that they would that's how they would want to consume their information and find 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 it um, so we started collagery and I think the real challenge, if I'm honest, was not learning all the new things about tech. I mean, that was a challenge in itself, but that was exciting and, and I'm still, you know, every day there's something different and every day there's something new to learn, you know, about the software and everything. It was wonderful. I mean, it was like a whole new world opening up, but it was, the challenge was to get what was in our head, the vision of collagery, which we wanted to make it as beautiful as a magazine how to build that platform, who we could build it with, on what on what um, platform that would be built on, whether it was Spotify or Contentful or, you know, but to learn all these things and to find, you know, collaborators and to find people who build the wireframes and to make the user experience really a, a fabulous one. Um, we set the bar really high. You know, I think we wanted it to, to, to the look and the feel of it to be to be a beautiful thing that went beyond the black and white endless scroll. We wanted it to be a lovely experience for that consumer. And I think that's what we built. But it took us a year, you know, it took us a good year to find, to put those teams in place. In the end, you know, we went for a team in New York, um, a creative agency in New York um, to do the branding. Um, and we found a team in Poland to build the wireframes for us. And so, you know, putting all the components together you know, was testing, but but, we, but Serena and I were like dogs with bones. You know, we knew how we wanted to experience it and we were in no rush to, it, it would take as long as it takes to, to build a beautiful product. And I think we have. Now uh, we're putting all sorts of different things in place because it's obviously ever evolving. Yeah. So the customer journey, you know, yeah. we, I think first and foremost, and this was, quite different from Vogue, I have to say, in a sense that with technology, 
and building a platform, consumer is first. For us, the consumer is first. We put him, her, they first in everything that we do. So every little bit of software that you put in, it's whether that's going to make their experience enhanced. So yeah, technology is, it's been an absolute, it's been a lifeline in a sense that I've learned something in my late 50s that I never thought I would be learning. And it's given me a platform that I'd never thought I would work with. And yeah, we just love it. And at Colville, we've just launched our e-com platform. So that's really exciting too, because we can now, you know, it's storytelling. Now we can tell the story of all these women who work for us in these mm. amazing places. And it's just, uh, it's just an amazing um, journey, really. It's been incredible. Yeah. yeah. You're very lucky. I think, like you said, that storytelling through technology is just so powerful in an age kind of characterised by phones, smartphones, social media. Um, so, yeah. Um, Lucinda, thank you so much for the discussion today. Yeah, I you. think we could just chat for the rest of the day. <laughs> so could I. Um, honestly, the, your career experience and the opportunities you've had are just so insightful. And I'm sure everyone listening will really appreciate what you've had to say today. We do, however, have one last question, <laughs> which we are asking all our guests. If you could have anyone at an imaginary dinner party, dead or alive, who would you invite and why? Gosh. I mean, I... It's a tricky one. <laughs> well, it is a tricky one, although actually, and not to sound sort of morbid, I would probably ask my mother, um, because I'd love to ask her all the questions that I didn't ask her when she was alive. And I think that's probably would be my first person that I'd have. Um, and I think I would work outwards from, from there. But I think... You know, I'd probably have like a favourite author like Iris Murdoch. Um, I'd have a favourite actress like Celia Johnson. I'd have a a a, a painter. Oh, I I mean, like Matisse. I mean, I just could go on and on. But I would I would start with my mother. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a nice one. Yeah. Um, that's so lovely. Yeah, that is really lovely. Thank, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Lucinda. Thank you for asking. Thank you for asking. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been such a delight to hear from you, and I'm sure everyone has absolutely loved it. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was DUCFS, the podcast in lockdown in conversation. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of our first 2021 podcast series and are looking forward to the episodes to come.